0: Hello, hi, how are you? Welcome to International Student Stories. I am your host, Simon Hamlin. In our last episode, we spoke with Merchant GMAT and Admissions founder and CEO, Anish Merchant. We talked about the Graduate Management Admission Test, GMAT, about his company, and about how he isn't just helping students take a test, he's helping them get clarity on their life goals. We had such a wonderful conversation that we decided to go deeper into the merchant company methodology. Today, we're joined by Merchant GMAT Director, Dr. Dimitrios Bonifakos. Dimitrios and I talk about the psychology behind the GMAT. The insights Demetrios shares apply not just to the GMAT, but to any test we may have to take. And the truth is, we all face tests in our lives. Before we start, please help us share these inspiring stories with your friends and family. Take a minute to subscribe to and follow the International Student Stories podcast. You can also rate us, share the podcast with others, and write a review. Go ahead and pause this episode right now so you can take action. Thank you for helping us. Now, let's jump in with Dr. Demetrios Vanafakos on International Student Stories. Demetrios, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Simon, good to be here.
0: All right, to start out with, something simple. Of, of all the pictures you currently have showing in your home, what's your favorite?
1: Quite an interesting question, actually. The first one that comes to mind is a childhood photograph, actually, that I have I must have been around six. I'm with my grandmother. I'm with my grandmother. But the really kind of interesting thing about it is like we're looking at each other. And, you know, there is a look that only a grandchild can give to a grandmother. And it's just, you know, frozen in time forever. So that is my favorite photograph in the house.
0: How would you describe the look you're giving her? It's just the look
1: of adoration, I think. You know, it goes beyond loving uh, someone who's in the family, you know. So that is a look I see in my face, just adoration for one's grandmother.
0: Well, I'm sure we could psychoanalyze that quite quite <laughs> a bit. We're going to psychoanalyze something else today. We want to psychoanalyze a little bit the GMAT test. And we had an opportunity to talk to Anish Merchant last week and had a great conversation with him and really excited to talk with you as kind of a bookend to that, to get into more of the psychology behind the GMAT test. Now you have your master's and PhD in psychoanalytic studies from the University of Essex. How did your life lead you in that direction?
1: That's a very good question. First of all, I have to say that, you know, the first time I talked to Anish, when he interviewed me for a post in the company, and he was literally interviewing me from Madrid at the moment and I was in Buenos Aires and I remember that the interview lasted about 10 minutes and then we spent another 50 minutes talking about psychology and standardized testing so you know it's a passion we share quite a bit now going into into my background and how I ended up here in this kind of work I was born and raised in Greece I left the country when I was around two years old my background there before I left was finishing a, a degree in psychology But there was something nagging me after doing psychology because it wasn't really what I was looking for. And what was nagging me was basically when I was around 16, I had picked up this book, real story. And it was like three case studies from Freud. And I just read the whole thing. I promise you, I think I understood about 10 words in total from the whole thing. But something, you know, just grabbed me. And I cannot really, you know, put words to it. But so, so it was just nagging me there in the back of my mind. So when the time for a, a postgraduate came, you know, psychoanalysis was on top of my list. Now the thing is, I spent quite a bit of time in the UK around fifteen years or so. And what was always quite fascinating about psychoanalysis was not just the, what was happening between a patient and an analyst, but actually how we could extrapolate that and use it outside the consulting room. And this is really something that, you know, set me on the path to be where I am today, you know? So after going through the whole kind of classical psychoanalysis and doing all that, I started applying it outside the consulting room. And the GMAT is one such application.
0: Describe your role with Merchant GMAT and admissions and exactly how you're applying your expertise in psychoanalysis.
1: Right. So at Merchandise, I'm the GMAT director. I am basically one of the five directors in the company. And we have a team of, of coaches who is basically administering the service you know, of coaching people, teaching them and guiding them through the whole journey as students. So the main idea here is actually taking the psychoanalytic look and tools and applying them to this test. And it was something that didn't take me too long to do, to be honest, because as soon as I saw the GMAT up close, I started realizing that, you know, there is much more under the surface than on top of the surface, on the surface. So that is really what got me going. The main I think, idea was just to think about the test as a thing in itself and think if the test is actually asking these questions, what is the test interested in? So empathy, reflection, you no, know, and this kind of trying to see the dynamics around what the test is looking for and what the students are looking for. And then finding this kind of common grounds between the two. As I usually say, it sounds very
0: fluffy, but by God, it has such practical applications. I love how you talk about the GMAT as if it's another person. How did you become interested in the GMAT in the first place? How we became interested in the GMAT is uh, basically How I
1: got into merchant, no, I got into coaching. Coaching or or teaching English was not something I was very interested in. Here in Argentina, I moved here to in Buenos Aires in 2013, 10 years ago. And after you know, spending some time in the local job market, I have to say that I was I was very, you know, I was missing a lot the Anglo-Saxon way of working. So when the opportunity presented itself to join a, a little startup here in Buenos Aires that Anis basically set up, you know, I jumped and I just grabbed it straight away, No, The real kind of hook here was that you're going to be talking about the English language, but you're not going to be teaching English. That in itself got my curiosity going, but I'm very, very curious person. So that was enough for me to dive in.
0: Now, if the GMAT were an actual person, how would you describe it? Oh,
1: what a question. What a question.
0: If the GMAT was an actual
1: person, plenty of ways to see it. I mean, in the everyday sense, I think he would have been quite meticulous person. Someone that would be basically a person of few words, very few words, quite thoughtful person and very, very focused on getting things done. Now, on the other side of the thing, it could be a person that could, you know, borderline on the obsessive. And actually, you know, drive you slightly crazy with repeating the same kind of patterns of obsessiveness. So, yeah, a good company overall, I
0: think. What is this GMAT person truly testing in another person? So, and that's the main thing, I think.
1: That GMAT person is interested in seeing how we pay or not pay attention, how we are conscious of how conclusions are based and what evidence. So what kind of conclusion and what kind of evidence and how that changes? They're interested to see not uh, so much absolute depth of academic knowledge as much as efficiency, being efficient, getting things done. And I think that's what the test is really, really looking at. And as far as I'm concerned, 80% of the aim of the test is basically testing those kind of characteristics in people.
0: What are the common challenges that students confront with the GMAT? And and what solutions are you typically providing them?
1: Well, I mean, the most common challenge, uh, to be honest with you, is fear. They're very, very, very afraid. The very first time I speak to people from all over the world, and that's the interesting thing, you know, first thing I note is, is fear. They're very afraid. So they either, you know, downplaying that fear, ah, I've done this before, it's fine. Or they're inundated by the fear. I don't know if I can do it. No, I think that plays into the test as well. I I tend to think that the GMAT is either willingly or unwillingly creating a lot of that environment. And I think part of the test is that environment. Breaking through that fear is the first problem of the examining. The very first problem is breaking through that fear, this mental barrier that we have. The way we really deal with it is actually we see the GMAT for what it really is. And what it really is, is basically a psychotechnical test. This is not about mathematics, this is not about the English language. Or if I could rephrase that, this is about 20% of it is mathematics, 20% is the English language. Then there is this other side to it. And this other side to it has to do with one's mentality, has to do with one's management of expectations, has to do with focus, sustained focus. That's why it's called the GMAT Marathon many, many times. And it has to do with how one obviously you know, manages their anxiety levels.
0: Could you offer some quick examples of how you help students address these inherent anxieties that come up from approaching the GMAT? It's the toughest part, I won't lie
1: to you. It's the toughest part because also there's not a quick solution, you know. Usually there's this whole industry. That is offering quick solutions in the GMAT, you know, with multi million industry that's offering very quick solutions. Part of the quick solutions, obviously, is like, you know, we have the, we know how to hack it. We have the way to, you know, get 750 in seven hours or, <laughs> or something. Those you are know, some wild claims. And of course, this kind of industry that produces the race towards 800. You no, know, I got 780, I got 790. And even people from the admissions, admissions directors are shouting out, this is not necessary, no, these kind of scores are created by the industry and the industry needs scores so that people will take it and retake it and retake it, no, to reach this absolutely amazing score that is basically something that is hardly usable. As I say to students, no one in 10 years from now will ask you, so how much did you get in GMAT? No one really cares. Basically, you know, it's just one of the five components of applying to to a school. So, how do people deal with anxiety? Now, the point here, I think, it's a two way street, as it were, because I mean, it depends where anxiety comes from. And the main kind of sources of anxiety have to do either with someone's past, you no, know, and I don't mean it in a psychoanalytic way. I'm not gonna go into mothers and fathers and all that, but it does have to do with tests and quizzes and exams when we were in primary school you no know, secondary school university those kind of experiences follow us and and we bring them to this exam obviously the other type of anxiety has to do with how someone is piling on the expectations on themselves the pressure and what they think they should be doing so the very very first thing we do is actually identify a trigger what is it about you no know? if it's about past experiences we work with students with Talking to them, actually using mock exams to demonstrate that things have changed and try slowly, slowly to shift their mentality. If it has to do, again, with expectations, if it has to do with extreme kind of pressure that one's apply to themselves, you know, these people come from very high pressure environments, what we do, we we do basically coaching. Again, we're using talking and we use chats. And we actually go into all these kind of constructs that people put together in their minds and try to deconstruct them, at least as long as it takes them to prepare for the test. So a lot of listening, a lot of talking, a lot of paying attention to the minute detail that usually is a deciding factor in these kind of things.
0: I wonder what we could learn from people's pictures of themselves looking at their grandmothers. Maybe that <laughs> could, could that be an entry point to see where their anxieties come from, or what calms them, looking at their grandmother? indeed, yeah, I had a great conversation with one of my dear friends the other day who is a coach for public speaking, but he also almost like a life coach, and mm-hmm. he talked about how he can give people all the techniques in the world to deal with public speaking and the fears around it, you know, stand up straight, project, all these, we'll call them hacks. But he said, you know, Simon, I I can't work that way. I need to learn about people's insides, what motivates them, what what is driving them, those inner things. And it's kind of an inside out process. So to your point of getting into people's past, getting into their psyche and understanding and listening and digging deeper, sounds like you approach it in a very similar way. It's a very inside-out process rather than maybe the traditional outside-in process with just a bunch of hacks to get through. That's
1: so, so right.
0: And I think that's why it's so rare. You know,
1: it's something we don't see in the industry at all, and as we were talking before we started, you know, this kind of idea of psychology of the gym, is something that people pay lip service to. because. Who can bother with these things anyway, you know? But actually, you know what? I call it almost like it's the like the archaeology of the mind in many respects, you know? And, and this is very, very psychoanalytic, you know? It's not random that Freud had a desk full of statues from ancient Egypt. You know? The man was, was obsessed with archaeology because it is about archaeological research in many respects. So in that sense, what we do is that, you know, we have a general framework that we know that the coaches are aware of. But actually, what we work with is what emerges in the moment. To give you an example, there was a student uh, about a month ago. That's one of the most recent things. About a month ago, there was someone that had been preparing for almost two years on their own with different techniques. Uh, He came to us and, you know, went through some of our methods and strategies and all that, you know, these things people can learn very fast. Let's be honest. These are, you know, highly educated professionals you know, you have a very, very long trajectory, and they are quite ambitious. So they come from many years of winning. Let's be honest. this university, as it work, so they pick up the strategies in no time. Now applying this stuff. Now that's where the difficulty comes in, and that's where anxiety comes in. And anxiety just blocks you. I mean, we all know it. No, we are under pressure. We cannot think clearly. Obviously, it's this idea of thinking under fire. So. Rafa comes in and he does his thing and he goes through mock exams and he starts, you know, scoring very well in mock exams. You know, he hadn't scored more than 530, I think, 540. He's getting 650s and 680s and 700s. He's ecstatic. He's very, very happy. And he goes to take the exam once again. He goes, he sits down and he gets a 510. 510. Two days before that 510, he was at 690. 690 from an official GMAT exam. So the man is devastated, devastated. He's thinking, look, I've tried two years. That's it, it's done. The problem with Rafa was he was correcting himself as he was solving. As I usually say to students, you pay good money for the GMAT to correct you. you now you solve. So he was doing everyone's job. So the thing that we talked about with him many times was like, you know what? I think we should now practice of you taking the exam without caring. It doesn't matter anymore. Doesn't matter. You know, you're not going to make it, but it's okay. It's fine. This is not your thing, most probably. So we started putting together a little mind trick of sitting down for four hours, thinking to yourself, doesn't really matter. No, doesn't really matter. Three weeks later, Rafa got 680 and he's now on his way for an MBA. He could hardly believe it. So I think, but this tells us a lot. You see, Simon, Rafa didn't learn anything in three weeks. So cognitively speaking, he had no new knowledge. And that new thing that he had, that was not knowledge, got him from 530 to 680. I think that says it all in terms of the GMAT psych.
0: In my conversation with Anish, we talked a lot about how the GMAT is a metaphor for life. And that really rings true with that anecdote you just shared. How are the, the psychological challenges that arise for students taking the GMAT also a metaphor for challenges we all face in our lives? That's a very
1: good point that you are making. And I know one is he actually really, really passionately believes in that. And I see where he's coming from as well. Because people used to say it's about skills in business, I think it's much more than that. Well, the main thing here basically is to, I think, one of the lessons we get from the GMAT, the life lessons, is know the beast you are fighting before you fight it. It's hugely important. And again, Simon, let's keep in mind the international student that comes in, for example, here in our case, Latin American student. You know, I'm Greek. We're not native speakers. So we come with assumptions. We come with assumptions. We sit down. We see the verbal part of the GMAT and it says rating comprehension. And I'm thinking, hang on, I've done that. You know, I took the first certificate, proficiency, TOEFL, whatever. No, it's just reading comprehension. Google reading comprehension. Or sense correction. No, I know this stuff is grammar. So these kind of assumptions, I think, is what really sinks people many times to the bottom of the score, let's say, because they go in with this understanding that they know about it. So the very, very first thing we have to do is redefine things. The GMAT is huge in that. It, it redefines everything. If you think about it, it redefines not only what's reading comprehension, which is not about, I mean, the GMAT, I mean, it's not about reading; it's about structure of the text, and it, what is sentence correction? No, it's not really about grammar; it's about logic and syntax. If you ask me, and it also redefines, for example, logic itself. You no know, jmat logic versus academic philosophical logic. So, the very very first thing is that you know know the beast that you are fighting. After that, of course, I think one of the other things is that. Use that knowledge practically. Now, use that knowledge, put it into practice. And this is what we really, really pay attention to in Merchant. When I talk about all these things, you know, I tend to start losing people in about 10, 15 minutes' time. And I tell them afterwards, trust me, you will see this every single week. So, we take this kind of insight and we create error logs, for example, uh, we create little exercises for reflection. We actually teach people thinking about you know what's behind or under the hood in the GMAT, rather than what's the answer is the A, B, C, or D. I think many, many, many times a good GMAT score is based on the problems you don't know, rather than the ones you know. You know what do you do? And if you think about it, there's a million ways to react when you just don't know when something, no? We're, we're sitting here, Bang, something comes up, but I don't have a clue. So what do I do? I could just make it up, or I could just freeze, or I could just run away. I'm going to run. I can just sit here and just sweat. And goes on and on and on. This kind of discipline is what distinguishes high scorers from low scorers.
0: And I can't help but keep thinking about how this just applies to every aspect of our lives. I mean, think it about does, how it? many yeah how many times we're in a situation where we have no idea how to deal with a certain thing. We've never been confronted with it before, but we've got to come up with some solution. So we just have to narrow down, eliminate the things that we know aren't going to work and then give it our best guess and give it the best shot.
1: Exactly. But very, very, very true. And, and, you know, that's that's where guessing comes in or skipping comes in. No? This idea that people go into the at with, again, assuming it's just another exam. They go in and they're saying, I just have to solve everything, which is basically nonsense. But how difficult it is to come to terms with that as well, to come to terms that I do not know this, my best chance is approximation. And that's it. And that has to do. Now, Take business graduates from a business environment that we know the competitiveness in all this. No, I don't know, this doesn't exist. What do you mean you don't know? So, and now the GMAT comes in and puts that challenge in front of them. You must accept that you don't know and move on. I think it's one of the top three most difficult things that students have to get used to. Not knowing and saying, well, I don't know this. Now guess,
0: move on. What would you like to leave students with if they could take one or two messages from this conversation we've had? What would you like them to walk away with?
1: The very, very first thing is that the GMAT is doable. The GMAT is not magic. The GMAT is not magic, but it's definitely, definitely different and it's definitely tricky. So a tricky test needs tricks. It's about learning the acrobatics of this test and performing them. That's what it's about. now. The second thing is, this sounds very easy, but it is not. It is not because it has to do with our mental state most of the times. You know, the gym is playing with something, and I always go back to this, you know, there's a lot of science into this, by the way, you know. In neuroscience, we call it cognitive load. Cognitive load is when Dimitris goes on about his childhood and the grandma for two hours and then goes to Simon, so what do you think? And Simon goes, well, I'm just totally lost that is basically what the GMAT is doing. Cognitive load happens or overload happens when time is short and information is complex. And this is basically what this test is about, you know? So really, we are dealing with something that is constantly overloading us. You know? It's something that constantly confuses us. So I think one of the very, very important things to keep in mind is that do not beat yourselves up. Confusion, feeling lost, that's part of the game. And it's artificial. It's not you. Everyone goes through this. The whole challenge is just breaking through that and keeping to your
0: plan. Well, Demetrios, our time sadly is short here, but I definitely don't feel overloaded. I, I could keep talking to you for <laughs> for so much longer. This is always so fascinating to me getting into the human psyche. And I love the beautiful metaphors that you've brought to this conversation and getting into the human psyche that way and sharing your experiences and your knowledge. It's been such a treat talking with you today. Thank you for being here.
1: It's been a real pleasure, Simon. And honestly, it's a great opportunity to share all this With people not only that are interested in the test in the technical side in the exam but also people preparing for the exam and hopefully you can go somewhere in in giving them a little hand of
0: help for sure and i think like we talked about earlier this applies to all parts of our life so i have no intention of taking the gmat never did have that intention. But you know what, this conversation has taught me so much. And I think our our listeners, even the ones that aren't planning to take the GMAT, will get so much out of this conversation. So thank you. Thank you once again. Sam. Demetrios, if anybody wants to get in touch with you get in touch with merchant GMAT, what are the best ways for them to contact you?
1: So, I mean, there are two routes, really, to get in touch with us. First is our website, at www.merchantgmat.com, um, where there's plenty of information on services that we offer, you no know, admissions and GMAT, et cetera, as well as a form to get further information and to get in touch with us. And the other is our LinkedIn page, Merchant GMAT Admissions and GMAT, where, of course, you could... Send us a message and get
0: directly in touch with us. Thank you again for listening to International Student Stories. And thank you to our team for putting together this episode. Stories are meant to be shared. So please pass the story on to a friend or family member who needs to hear a good story. A few other quick notes. I invite you to check out the show notes if you want more details on some of the topics discussed in this episode. For all the latest podcast news, stop by our website, studyintheusaglobal.com forward slash podcast. That's S-T-U-D-Y in the USAglobal.com forward slash podcast. Subscribe to the International Student Stories podcast to be alerted on new episodes. And contact us if you know of a current or former international student whose story needs to be shared with the world. Goodbye for now, be well, and much love to each and every one of you.